This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Good morning, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? We are back for another episode of Don't Listen to This Podcast. I am your host, Sam LaCrosse. How's everyone doing today? Again, I know you can't. It's. I think I've told you guys how many times how, how really bizarre it is to be like kind of talking to yourself in the middle of your apartment with just no one around you and like pretending that there's someone there. I think it's easier when you're doing something like this. I don't know if any of you guys are doing your own audio or media formats, but just kind of imagining that someone is there and, and kind of just doing the one thing where it's like, okay, there's someone here, so I'm not going completely crazy and just kind of talking into a wall and talking into a wall and talking into a wall and like, you know, it just kind of just doesn't happen at that point. So I think it's um, it's just easier for that to do. But anyways, so this is a topic that I'm not going to give much of an intro this week. Really, it's been kind of a boring week for me and kind of a shitty week for me, which actually kind of fed into the post, actually. So this is a post I've been wanting to write for a very, very long time. I'm really excited about it. And I think it turned out very, very good, if I do say so myself. But um, I've been, you know, very curious on this topic for a while. I've looked into it for a while. I've read read a lot about it, and it's something that I think I can personally resonate to a lot and relate to a lot. So I've wanted to write it down for a long time and kind of get my thoughts out and kind of see what it morphed into. And I'm actually kind of shocked of the discussion that I had while writing it. So it actually turned out to be better than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be much more depressing than it was, but actually it turned out to be a lot more optimistic than I think it was, which I think plays right into the theme of this post a lot. So I'm just going to get right into it. So I don't know if there's a greater compliment that a person can give to another person than to say that they're honest. Honesty, unfortunately, is a very rare commodity these days. With so many lies perforated throughout our society via our various conduits of influencers and media, it's almost impossible to get a straight answer from anyone anymore on anything. Do people really say what they believe? Or are they just lying through their teeth to get what they really want? Honestly, but I'm Ching, I think it's a little bit of both. But what do people want, we should ask? I think that's what we want what we want is to be accepted by other people. A lot of people would say in that sentence on its face is flawed, that it's somehow quote narcissistic or superficial. But it's not that simple. Humans have gotten this far in the modern world without nuking each other, fingers crossed, due to the simple fact and necessity of human cooperation. Without needing anything from one another, why the fuck not blow each other to pieces and rape and pillage our way toward our desires? We've wisely found out that we do need things from one another. We do need to coexist with one another. And not just in the way of the cheesy bumper sticker that I despise the every fiber of my cold, dark soul. 
This is why things such as businesses, circle jerks, charities, religions, and sewing clubs exist. The need for community is a need for all. <clears throat> so why would one want to get rid of it in order to help destroy that community? <clears throat> or rather, so what would one want to get rid of in order to help destroy that community? For starters, they would tell lies. Get people to agree to things that are not true and try to make them so. Destroying the fabric of unconditional trust is one way to start, an effective way to start. When no one knows what to believe, it is easy for everyone to rip each other to shreds in order to get what they need. However, there is one other way to do this that is just as, if not more, effective than most, and it's a complete opposite of the one we just described. You tell the truth. You might think that this seems backwards, and it is backwards, but in the words of Jack Nicholson, most can't handle the truth. The truth is a much heavier burden to bear than a lie. Always. Nothing weighs as heavily as it does in the human psyche. It's easy to lie to yourself and say that your relationship is going great. It's hard to tell yourself that you've only been pumping it with hot air in order to keep it afloat. It's easy to lie to yourself and say that the lights will stay on. It's hard to give up Tall Boy Friday with the boys in order to pay the utility company. It's easy to lie to yourself and say that your quote-unquote casual porn addiction isn't destroying your brain. It's hard to tell yourself that you're an addict and that you have a problem. It is for this reason that Chuck Palahniuk is the, most single, the single most stimulating voice that I've heard in years. In October 2018, Joe Rogan had the master stimulator himself onto his podcast. Many people, including myself, simply skimmed over him at first as just another obscure guest that no one has ever heard of. Rogan's a weird dude. This happens to his listeners often. This all changed when I learned the identity of the man he was interviewing. Palahniuk is a freelance author and journalist, whose most influential work is the novel Fight Club, originally published in, published in print in 1996 before it was turned into the greatest movies of the last quarter century by David Fincher in 1999. But the novel and movie caused quite a stir. A lot of people said that it didn't think very highly of it. They called it controversial. And no one loved that reaction more than Chuck Palahniuk. When I'm with Rogan, the self-described quote-unquote transgressive author was shown to completely bare for the world to know who he really is. On the outside... Polonik looks like the guy you would expect to write something like Fight Club. Handsome, tall, ripped, haircut just between that of a trendy millennial and a neo-Nazi, etc. But, underneath, that's not who he is at all. His voice is incredibly soft. He falls into deep trances of thought, speaking very carefully and pausing before he delivers an answer to a question. He's articulate and elegant in his speech, doing so with incredible precision. Oh, and he's gay. Can't leave the identity politics out of this now, can we? But in this case... The identity politics are crucial to this article, simply because they completely obliterate what they are mostly used for. Not sensing that Polonik was transgressive as he originally articulated, he slowly began to pull back the curtain. While making the movie Fight Club as an, a, a consultant to Fincher, Polonik began to get close to a lot of people in Hollywood, Winona Ryder being among them. Polonik's father, like many, had a crush on Winona Ryder. He would constantly bug him about it, begging for an introduction. Polonik, ever the golden soul, politely refused, although not without any conflict within himself. His dad just wouldn't let it go. It soon began to get uncomfortable. Which is why Rogan started laughing nervously when Polonik stated his begrudging relief for his father being murdered by a white supremacist in the Idaho woodlands. At least I don't have to worry about that whole Winona Ryder thing, were his exact words. If you hadn't heard enough neo-Nazi references by this point, Polonik is also a subscriber to the Daily Stormer, the leading white supremacist publication in the United States. He was pleased when pri prison librarians told him that his books were popular among their most aggressive and hostile populations. 
When suggested to remove the infamous I want to have your abortion line in the Tyler Durden Marla Singer sex scene, the line he suggested to replace it was, quote, I haven't f been fucked that good since grade school, end quote. Fincher begged him and Hel Helena Bonham Carter to switch it back. They didn't oblige. But the story that shook me to my core was the one that he told about his mother. Paulinick's mother was diagnosed with lung cancer, which unfortunately turned out to be terminal. Paulinick, like any good son, went to care for his mother as she wasted away into the ether. If anyone knows this type of suffering, they all know it's a special breed of sick fuckery. It's one thing when you feel pain. It's another when someone else, someone you love, feels it. Feels it constantly and cannot make it do anything to make it go away. And that's when Chuck Palahniuk admitted the one thing that no one in this situation wanted to admit. Quote, I'm a bad person. I really am. End quote. Rogan was puzzled by this and asked him to elaborate. Palahniuk then went on to say how, when his mother eventually passed from the illness, he was incredibly saddened. But also, he felt relieved. Relieved that he didn't have to carry that burden anymore. Relieved that his mother had just died instead of feeling any more pain. Relieved that no one else had to see someone degrade themselves by living such a horrific existence. The reason that Chuck Palahniuk's interview stuck out was because it was honest. It was refreshing. He's one of the few people that was able to cut through the line of bullshit that is permeating our culture in a completely unapologetic fashion to shatter any facade that may have veiled its decency. It was also incredibly brave. Few people are willing to go to the places that Chuck Palahniuk is willing to go. Few people are willing to explore the depths of their soul in that degree of harshness, let alone bear that vulnerability on the most widely listened to media platform in the entire world. He completely eviscerated the narrative of what he was quote-unquote supposed to be like, according to our mob and ruling class. He simply was who he was. In the words of the Smashing Pumpkins, he went to where the boys fear to tread. Honesty is a hard thing to come by because honesty hurts. We're afraid to be honest due to a lot of things. Polnick's story with his mother describes this in the most stark de detail I can tell. Anyone in that situation knows how hard it is to do what he did. And anyone in that situation will tell you, if they're being honest, that they were a little relieved when it's over, too. How could they not be? Helping someone through that dark of suffering is a form of suffering itself. You're literally watching a human life that you cherish descend into nothingness in front of your very eyes. That's an impossible thing to describe, let alone live through. It's what make workers in hospice care and nursing homes and nursing homes heroes. Chuck Palahniuk was honest, and therefore Chuck Palahniuk was brave. Truly brave people are the ones who aren't afraid to be vulnerable, to let that side of their personality show. Palahniuk was brave because he was one of the very few people in the greater culture to pull the veil back from the one thing that humans refuse to be honest about the most, their dark sides. This is, in my estimation, the thing that people are least likely to show about themselves. The dark side of humanity has many faults, one that have been exposed for us to see ad nauseum. They are unequivocally a part of who we are, but yet we have refused to recognize them when it pertains to our individual spheres of consciousness. Why? Because people don't want to be seen as bad, of course. But what does bad even mean? Is it arbitrary? Is it fixed? Do us mere mortals even get to weigh in on and decide these things? In my experience and studies, people avoid quote-unquote bad by performing and going to what they believe is good. But is this right? It depends on what you believe is good and bad, I suppose. But this doesn't solve the problem. It only lends itself further into obscurity. The bizarre thing is, we're all attracted to it. It comes out in our daily lives. We constantly watch it on movies and on television. We read it in books. We demand it out of our significant others. We claim to hate terrorism, 
but we love watching the Joker blow a talk show host's brains out on live television and Rambo brutally maiming a bunch of wannabe cops in a forest in Washington. We claim to hate weapons of mass destruction, but we love it when Aang and Korra go into the Avatar state and blow everything near them into oblivion. We claim to be higher elevated beings, but we love when Biggie Smalls brags about smacking babies at their christening and Biggie Dar Michi Darko pr preferring to burn in hell and not in prison. So do we hate these things, or do we love this shit? Lil Wayne voice. The politically correct answer would be to say that you condemn and hate all of these things, and only indulge them simply for entertainment value or to get your kicks somehow. That you really don't need these things, or to express the side of yourself. You can always get it from one avenue or the next. But this is not true. In reality, the dark side of your soul unlocks the key to the development of your personality. It shows you a part of you. It is your dark side, if you haven't noticed. We don't indulge it simply just to indulge in it. The human brain does not work that way on a primal level. Everything is intentional when it comes to our desires and our subconscious. Our fast brains may be flawed, but they never make mistakes. It is time, in my view, to stop running from the honesty that we are so afraid to let slip from our minds and mouths. It is time to embrace our whole personality, and not just the part that we want to see. That's the whole idea of the self-love movement, right? Loving all of yourself, even when you don't like to or want to admit it's there? However, unlike the self-help movement, this is not a conflation of a self-lie. This is a very real thing, and that is what this post is designed to articulate. Too often in our culture are we bound to saying what is right, we think is right instead of what we feel deep in our bones is right. Too often we allow others to be coddled by our own psychological deterioration. Too often we suppress what we really believe and feel in order to appease the masses, not afraid to call them out on their hypocrisy for feeling the exact same things they shame us for expressing. We should not run from our dark side. Instead, we need to work on noticing its advantages and reaping the rewards that can come from it. But this is highly dangerous. Dark things are dark for a reason. There is a lot of bad that can come from them. A lot of terrible people have done terrible things when they've tapped into this side of their personality. A lot of them go too far. They go over the edge. They emerge from the place the boys fear to tread as something unimaginable before their submergence. We must be careful not to make that mistake. One of the most widely circulated symbols in the history of the world is the Taoist yin and yang, pictured at the top of this post. If you're reading the post, again, don't read this blog.com where the two half-circles flow together with a small dot of either white and black in the sea of the opposite color. In the words of Thanos, they are perfectly balanced, integrated flawlessly into one whole being, careful not to disrupt the other or risk the destruction of their harmony. Too often now in our society have we become unbalanced towards either side. We have not taken the route of coexistence. We have simply taken the path of expedience. But, like honesty, balance is not easy. It cannot be achieved by taking the route of expedience. The road less traveled must be taken. The duality of man must be explored. The monster that is us must be unleashed for the world to see, in all its glory and horror. In order to explore this essential duality of the human condition, we must look backwards to the most powerful idea in the history of modern man that birthed it. Next, we will look upon it in modern practice, and finally explore how to best integrate it within ourselves in order to give ourselves the best chance to transcend our existence, to get to that elevated place in which we all strive to go. But Unlike Chuck Palahniuk, the road to this enlightenment will not be found in a hospital bed, a forest in Idaho, or a red carpet alongside Winona Ryder. Ours lies on top of a mountain. Act 1. The most powerful idea ever. Legend has it that the great Zarathustra climbed the mountain sometime between 1883 and 1885. 
Enthralled with this newfound enlightenment, Zarathustra stumbled down the hill, nearly falling at every crack and crevice, in order to tell the world of his discovery. Being gone for a long time, no one had expected Zarathustra to re-emerge. They were too busy with their normal lives. It was a quiet town, one where people went about their business, spent time with their families, went to church, and not much else. In Eastern Europe during that time, there was simply not that much else to do. But little did the villagers know that they were about to witness the most transformational moment in modern world history. Zarathustra finally reached the bottom of the mountain and meandered his way into the village. Near delirious from the combination of his exhausting existence on top, atop the massive wonder of nature for all those years, and from his exhilarating journey down it. For this moment, he knew he would change the world. For this moment, he had lived for. For this moment, he had to tell all he could. For this moment, he knew he would live forever. Zarathustra looked different to the villagers from when they had last seen him. He looked sick, tired, and near death. He was as thin as a skeleton but his eyes popped out of his skull, a fire lit in each of his pupils. His hair was mangy, mangy and wild, not much different from someone who had gone mad. The villagers, all curious as to what had become of their one-time compatriot, all gathered around in the city square, paralyzed with both their own bewilderment and curiosity at what had become of him. When Zarathustra had the strength after his long trek down the mountain, he looked upon the crowd with a blaze lighting both of his eyes, a smile forced upon his lips, and spoke the three words that he knew would change everything. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him, he went on. His phrase then turned into a belligerent rant, a prophecy that was bestowed upon him from his years atop the mountain. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderer of all murderers? What the holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? All of these questions went unanswered. The villagers were too aghast to speak. When most think of the genre of self-improvement, this tale generally goes unmentioned. It's a bit harsh. It wouldn't sell very well on Amazon. Well, it does now, at least relatively. Rumor has it when that story was first printed, it only sold around 40 copies. By contrast, the book largely credited with popularizing the self-help movement, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, has sold over 100 million copies. That's a 2.5 million difference, if you're doing the math. In his book, Hill talks about much of what is currently talked about in this genre of book. Desire, manifesting, planning, all that jazz. It's just the same shit spit out in different fashions by different people. But in reality, it is the other author that should be credited for the creation of the most influential idea ever. Friedrich Nietzsche is widely seen as one of, if not the most, influential philosophers the last 1,000 years. Born in Germany in 1884, he soon was recognized for his brilliance, becoming the youngest person to hold the chair of classical philosophy at the University of Basel at the age of 24. However, he was soon crippled by debilitating health problems, which led him to resign the position, lose his grip on the res his research and studies, and plunge him into poverty. Falling into the care of his mother and sister, he spent the rest of his miserable and wretched life writing out various existential ideas of the notions of the world and the concepts that formed it. In Nietzsche's view, like the founders of the United States, he viewed the entire world population as one that was wired for religion. Even if we do not claim to be, to be a religious person, our thoughts automatically arrange themselves into a structure that orients certain things at higher heights than others. Hierarchies. However, back in the mid-1800s, nearly everyone, particularly in Eastern Europe where he was born, was religious. 
They're mostly Christian in nature, with most of their entire lives revolving around the religion. No one ever dared to think that anything could replace it. Except for Nietzsche. One day, when writing in his bed under the care of the only two people in the world that cared to love him, Nietzsche had a grand prediction. With all the advancements going on in the world and the rapid increase of awareness of other ways of life, God would soon be replaced. The thing that we had been wired for for thousands of years across all cultures, no matter what you believed, as the highest value one could hold, was going to die, and that every society would eventually murder their own God by their own willing hand. In its place, he stated, another thing would rise, the Ubermensch, or the Superman, as translated from German. Man would completely invert the modern value structure of the entire world and make man itself the highest value, the ideal, the God who would kill God. And thus, sometime before 18, between 1883 and 1885, he wrote his magnum opus, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, the tale about the enlightened Zarathustra coming down the mountain to tell this revelation. The rest of the book is widely disputed by critics and historians. It's barely readable and incredibly complex to understand. It's no wonder it only sold reportedly 40 copies. When the rest of the book is so densely complex that people can interpret it literally hundreds of different ways, it can be hard to say whether it's even good or not. I know, I read the fucking thing, or at least I tried to. But that one parable in the very beginning of the book constantly sticks out to critics as one of the great literary moments in all of philosophy. A lot of people point out the boldness of Nietzsche to make such a strong claim, one that was so contrarian at the time that would make anyone who dared to go near it at risk of being vilified as a heretic. Many people state the truth that the idea that did happen, and that the decline in modern religion was a very sound prediction. But I would take it one step further. I would say that this single idea is the single most revolutionary idea of all time. The death of God moment was so revolutionary that I would argue that it was the thesis that spelled out the entire story of the entire 20th century. After Nietzsche's prediction, people started playing God. Hitler looked up to Nietzsche. He was his favorite person to study when coming up on his, his philosophy on how the world should be run, how his world should be run. People on both sides of World War II and the Cold War started m making things like biological weapons and nuclear bombs, claiming, falsely, that they had true control over what this immense power these technologies possessed. Ordinary men like Joseph Stalin and Benito Mussolini started to realize their true power, should they only look within themselves to dig it out for themselves. You see, if they could be the one who people looked up to, they would be different in their eyes. But conversely, a lot of good happened as well. People took it upon themselves to take up more responsibility than one thought possible before this concept was exposed to the world. People like Gandhi and MLK decided to step forth among the critics and fight for equality and peace, taking all the arrows and bullets along the way. Muhammad Ali didn't want to be a common athlete. He wanted to be the greatest, and shit-talk everyone on his way to the top, too. Bill Gates and Steve Jobs decided to be and think differently than the rest of the population by revolutionizing the way that we do everything. They didn't want to sit on the sidelines and do as they were told. They wanted to make their world in their image, much like God, the God that they helped to murder. After Nietzsche passed, two of Nietzsche's greatest admirers, Carl Jung and Jordan Peterson, continued his work. Jung, an indirect student of Nietzsche, delved deep into this theory and began to analyze it with incredible perception and precision. In Nietzsche's analysis, Jung saw a recurring pattern. Uncharted territory. Jung began to realize that if human beings did not see potential in themselves, they would be relegated to staying as who they were, not who they could be. Like the great alchemists, he realized that combining all parts of the human psyche and spirit, even the parts you don't like to acknowledge that are there, 
you could become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. From this, Jung drew perhaps his most famous idea, that of the Jungian shadow. Seeing that people did not realize their potential for true greatness until they looked upon themselves with honesty, Jung saw something indelibly horrifying. People did not realize their own potential for evil, either. Like Nietzsche before him, Jung did not perceive the death of God as a slap in the face to religion, as most people who analyze the idea see it. No. Like Nietzsche before him, Jung saw it as a mistake. A horrible mistake. A mistake that's so large that, if enough people realized its truth, it could destroy the world. Peterson, who viewed Jung as a personal hero and Nietzsche as perhaps the most revolutionary thinker ever, made a living as a researcher largely doing studies in the formation of totalitarian systems, most of, most of which took pace, place, as mentioned before, in the 20th century. A psychologist by trade and a professor by day, Peterson began to notice a pattern. Every time one of these horrific societies formed, the ideas of Nietzsche and Jung aligned. The ability to defy and subvert whatever power you believed in was beginning to multiply. And those who realized the true potential within themselves had the greatest authority in order to do so. Peterson then began his clinical practice to explore this with his clients. He didn't want to simply know them. He wanted to know all of them. One example is chronicled by him in his recent book, Beyond Order, exemplifies this perfectly. Peterson once had a client come to him whom his mother and a government psychologist had diagnosed as a schizophrenic. He had night terrors and was so withdrawn into himself recently that he barely communicated. Growing up in the highly cr religious Christian household in the Baptist southern United States, the, the young man had immigrated to Canada, Peterson's homeland, and came out as gay. He had a successful relationship with another man, but then had broken it off in quite sudden fashion after years of dating. After this is when the strange behavior had started. Peterson realized very quickly that this man was not a schizophrenic. It was a careless misdiagnosis by an overworked doctor in a dysfunctional government healthcare system. The man was quite articulate, bright, and pleasant to be around when he opened up. However, Peterson could sense that he was hiding something. The man did not want to divulge, but did tell Peterson the reason that him and his boyfriend broke up was due to a big fight, in which he had immediately moved out of the apartment that they shared. Peterson, wanting to get to the bottom of this man's mental issues, asked his client if he could try hypnosis to get him to reveal the details. The man could stop at any time. All he had to do was have Peterson say the word. The man agreed, and they started the process. Once under the trance, Peterson's client revealed the details of the fight. After getting home from a night out, the two got into a squabble about something that had happened while out. The argument got heated and eventually dragged out into a highly aggressive and instigative conflict. Soon, the argument got physical, with the two men hitting and shoving one another out into mutual frustration and anger. Peterson's client eventually was beaten and jumped upon by his boyfriend, clearly in a submissive position. But the client's boyfriend didn't stop. The client's boyfriend grabbed a table lamp from beside the couch and raised it above his head, seconds away from bashing Peterson's client's face in. The client, still in the trance, began to sob. Retelling the story to Peterson, he said that he had never seen a look of such malevolence in another person's eyes, especially not in someone that he loved. A look at the time of pure, unfiltered anger and rage. At that moment, his boyfriend was gone. He was replaced by someone he didn't know. A person who wanted to hurt him. A person who wanted to inflict as much pain and suffering onto him as possible. Fortunately, Peterson's client was able to take his boyfriend's legs out and flee. He then came back and moved himself out when he knew his now ex-boyfriend was to be gone. But Peterson had unearthed a great discovery. When first interviewing his client and his mother, 
Both stated that they viewed people as quote-unquote angels due to both their faith in humanity and their religious faith. They viewed that people were all naturally good in their hearts and that hardly anyone was bad. They were all manifestations and creations of God and man. No one could do any wrong. Then the light bulb went off in Peterson's head. The reason for his client's intense shift in personality was not because he was a schizophrenic. The reason for his client's intense shift in personality was that he was finally shown the other half of humanity that he had been coddled and shielded from. He couldn't take the reality that some people aren't angels. When faced with that reality, he couldn't handle it. It broke him. Peterson then realized what Nietzsche and Jung had all those years before him. If you are not aware of both sides of human potential, you are automatically at a disadvantage of someone who is. Peterson then realized something else. If more people knew what they were capable of, if more people were encouraged, if more people explored their whole personality instead of hiding away from it, there would be few people that would be caught off guard like his client was. More people would realize that angels that many people many mistake others for are not as cherubic as they seem. They began to realize that within every human lies a monster. So what do we do with that? The answer to all three incredible thinkers was the same. You need to find a way to explore it. You need to be aware of what you are now and, more importantly, who you could be. Your potential is either the greatest gift you can give the world or the greatest curse you can bestow upon it. Peterson had cracked the code. He realized that in order to tame this awesome wave of potential, you needed to strengthen yourself enough to explore it. He began to dedicate the rest of his days as a clinical psychologist, professor, and later author and speaker to this one topic, improvement. Getting better a little bit at a time so you can keep a grip on, on yourself without steering yourself off the road. The death of God and the rise of the Superman transformed the entire world. It completely shifted how we looked at human potential and what we are truly capable of. Nietzsche's prediction came true. God was killed by humans when they, much like the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, became self-aware, when they realized they could be whoever they set out to be. Well, at least in theory. Additionally, it gave birth to a much larger demographic of people. The people that were so afraid of pursuing their true potential that they shrunk away from it. They became a part of a near-universal style of conformity. They didn't want to look at their whole personality. It scared them too much. It was, correctly, much easier to be a common citizen or villager than a person that could subvert the ultimate power hierarchy. This movement birthed a legacy of a whole group of people who's a, who was being obsessed with one thing while conversely looking away from what needed their attention the most. This idea of conformity, of not looking where we did not want to look, soon became diluted by excess, spreading like wildfire through the culture as we aged in time. People soon began to be afraid of true self-improvement. True self they would rather read Napoleon Hill than Frederick Nietzsche. They didn't want to look where they feared. They did not want to confront the duality of man. Act 2. The Duality of Man Harry Potter probably didn't want to confront the duality of man either, but unfortunately for Harry Potter, it was forced upon him. I'm not going to recite the thousands upon thousands of pages of the books for you, but I'll give you the general gist of the story if you haven't heard it. Harry Potter was a child born with magical powers who, according to a prophecy, had the power to vanquish a dark wizard, Voldemort. Voldemort hunted Harry down and killed his family, but he himself was destroyed when he tried to kill Harry. He was then cast aside for nearly 15 years, not dead, but not totally alive. Eventually, he returns to finish the job and take over the world with finishing the job of killing Harry Potter as his top priority. 
I've read all of the books and seen all of the movies and think they're all tremendous. But there is one scene in particular that touches me emotionally every time I watch it. At the end of the fifth book and movie, particularly the movie in this case, Order of the Phoenix, Voldemort is engaged in a duel with Harry's mentor and mandatory old bearded guy in these books, Dumbledore, wanting to get, Harry, wanting to, get to Harry and to kill him. Even, through him and Voldemort, even though him and Vol Dumbledore eventually stalemate, Voldemort has a trick up his sleeve. He has a window into Harry's mind. You see, when Voldemort attempted to murder Harry, the curse rebounded because of his mother's protection, breaking off a piece of Voldemort's soul and latching itself onto Harry. Throughout the entirety of the fifth volume of the series, Harry becomes noticeably darker in personality. He isn't just a kind boy who is whisked into a magical world anymore. He is two parts of the same whole, one that is just beginning to notice that the other half exists. Horribly frightened that he could succumb to Voldemort's clutches, Harry spends the entirety of the book fighting off those impulses, trying his hardest to make sure that he doesn't fall into the clutches of his own lower instincts. Voldemort knows this, and uses it to possess Harry's mind. In mere seconds, he floods his consciousness with hor horrific images of the past trauma he's faced, things he's guilty of, and other things that have been weighing on the boy. All meant to push him over the edge, to madness, to darkness. However, the most staggering image, and the one most horrifying to Harry, is the one he saves for the end. Harry is standing in front of a mirror when his head jerks to the side. As he looks back at, him, at himself, Voldemort's face has taken, in, taken the place of his. He then say, says the phrase that breaks Harry's current view of himself into pieces. Look at me. Harry doesn't want to look. And the reason Harry doesn't want to look is because he doesn't want to face what he already knows to be true. Voldemort is a part of him. How horrific that must have been to realize. That a man who could quite literally be Satan himself is a part of who you are. But Harry also realizes something as all this is happening. If Voldemort is a part of him, then he must be a part of Voldemort too. Using all of his strength, Harry fights back the Dark Lord until he expels him from his mind. Voldemort, taken aback, flees the scene. This realization is perhaps one of the most powerful that I've ever seen in literature. Two characters that are completely opposites from one another in theory are the ones that complement each other the best, all because they know that they have a bit of the other residing within themselves. Voldemort knows that he can destroy Harry because he's already deeply embedded into his being. Harry realizes afterwards that he can flip the script on Voldemort by seeing the inner darkness within, acknowledging that it's there, and doing everything in his power to remove the danger it imposes upon the world. He must willingly go where he does not want to go. He must go where the boys fear to tread. There's a reason why, as we've evolved, particularly in entertainment, we attach to certain types of characters more than the ones we used to. Superman isn't a popular superhero anymore. Why? Because Superman is quite too perfect. He quite literally has no flaws. There's not a shred of badness in him. He's a god amongst men, as pure of a being as there has ever lived. The reason that people aren't buying into characters like Superman anymore is very simple. He's too perfect. Human beings are very perceptive and smart creatures. We can smell bullshit a mile away. And we know that Superman is bullshit. Why? Because no man or woman that walks this earth is perfect. We'd much prefer someone like Harry Potter, whose mind gets torn into pieces because of inner trauma and turmoil he faces. If you haven't noticed, J.K. Rowling went from an unemployed single mother to perhaps a person that's richer than the Queen. But why do we look at this? And the answer is because we face inner turmoil and trauma. 
We'd like to hold ourselves up as these elevated beings who know right from wrong and can, can accurately derive that to form our lives. But do we? Do we really know right from wrong, good from evil, especially at a time where we can't even come to basic facts about things that seem ba like basic facts for thousands of years? I would argue that, a lot of the time, we don't. Things are rarely black and white in nature. They more take the mold of a shade of gray. If this blog accomplishes anything but telling you that things are much more complicated and messy than they seem, I think I've done a good thing. We crave this type of behavior. We pay, for, we pay to see it in movies and our Netflix subscriptions. UFC 261 was the most electric sporting event I think I'd ever I'd seen since the beer virus came to town, strictly because there were people there literally screaming for people to beat the brakes off of one another. Oh, and because Jake Paul was there, but that's another article for another time. We're all less evolved than we think we are. Our psychology, as illustrated by the three gentlemen in the previous section, tells us as much. We look up to the people whom we aspire to be like. And the people who we aspire to be like are people that we, we can relate to. And the people that we can relate to are those that are just as fucked up as we are. The people that are just as fucked up as we are have, have two sides of themselves and constantly engage in mental warfare within our own minds to see which side will win versus the other. But I also believe that there's something else at work. I believe that in our current society that we are suppressed. Because of the cultural forces currently at work... Geez, that was bizarre. Give me one second. Sorry, my computer just totally shut down on me. One second. <laughs> because of the cultural forces currently at work and the peer pressure from all avenues of our society, you can thank our ruling class and mob respectively for that one too, a lot of our ways to indulge in this behavior have been tapered off and thrown by the wayside. Anything that exposes our inner darkness and the other side of our human nature has been immediately castigated as, quote, a bad influence or toxic. This is done, at least in my opinion, with mostly good intentions. We don't like people to become bad people. But the mistake that these people make is the lack of trust that they give the people that they care for, or at least say that they care for. When you don't fully trust something, you don't really want to become better. A person who truly cares for something will teach it how to fix themselves, not try to impose its dogma and ideology upon it. That sense of aggressive action, of tapping into your dark side, has slowly begun to seep away as the forces above have began to wrestle control away from the citizens of the world. But this has come as a cost. School shootings were never a thing. They're happening now with more frequency. People are trusting people less and acting more hostile towards their fellow citizens than ever before. Polarization across all factions and forms is increasing at a frightening pace. Teaching children to defend themselves is frowned upon. Slowly but surely, the darkness and toughness that wasn't once defined us is being squeezed and strangled out of us like water out of a towel. We're being wrung out of all the stuff that defines our being and delivers astronomical benefits. Our potential is being thrown away simply because the people don't like the bad that can potentially bring without noticing the good that can equally come with it also. A perfect example of this has manifested in another show that's going crazy on Netflix, but only this one is actually very good and worth watching. Cobra Kai is the most refreshing thing I've seen on television in recent memory. While more tame than Fight Club, Cobra Kai has the same principles that they instill in that show, rising above others in terms of learning to be self-sufficient, not relying on other people to come and save you, taking on the responsibility to let go of who you were in order to, to become who you could be. Sound familiar? Cough, cough, Nietzsche. Even while being a bit cheesy in terms of the dialogue, writing, and 80s movie references, the show does an incredible job of highlighting one topic that a lot of people shy away from. Bullying. Bullying, speaking from someone who was bullied and whose siblings were bullied, is not looked upon and talked about with honesty in our culture. It's a shame, really. 
A lot of people try to frame those who are bullied as, quote, the bigger person or, quote, the real winner. Well, I'm here to tell you that that's a line of fucking bullshit. And to its credit, Cobra Kai proves it. Bullies, to the contrary of those who sub subscribe to mindless positivity and naive optimism, I, aka people who aren't aware of the duality, duality of man, don't give a single fuck about the mindset of the person that is bullied. All they care about in that scenario is picking on that person. They want to make them feel small. They want to do everything they can to break their spirit so that they, they themselves can falsely say that they're above them. My favorite character in the show is Eli Hawk Moskowitz, a child on the autism spectrum who is viciously bullied by the popular clique in school due to his disability, his status as a nerd, and a scar on his face because of a cleft lip. He also wears goofy clothes and only has one friend, who has a fixed mindset and is also constantly bullied. Perhaps worst of all, he is coddled and overprotected by his mother, who makes the mistakes of lots of parents who discover their child is bullied. She calls the school to make an announcement to try to get the behavior to stop. This, of course, does nothing but make the situation worse. When the guidance counselor does a horrific job of telegraphing who the anti-bullying announcement is about, the bully surge to Eli even more. This causes him to completely snap, yell at his mother, and run in his room to cry, his spirit and soul completely broken. But, calling again on a line from Fight Club, it is only after we've lost everything that we're free to do anything. Johnny Lawrence, the bully of all bullies from the original Karate Kid film, reopens the Cobra Kai Karate Dojo. Inspired by his new friend Miguel after he beat the tar out of the bullies that had picked on him, Eli joins the dojo. Lawrence's, Lawrence, still clinging, clinging to some of his bullying tendencies and noticing that all of the kids that have joined the dojo are on the low end of the social food chain, ironically, completely to the contrary of his character as a teenager in the original film, begins to pick on the kids in order to armor their minds and toughen them up. When a completely broken and vulnerable Eli walks into the dojo, he becomes a primary target of Lawrence's bullying. After making it through the initial wave of quitters after they couldn't handle Lawrence's way of running the dojo, Lawrence decides to press harder. Noticing the scar, Lawrence immediately resorts to nicknaming him Lip and calling the deformity out to all the other kids. Eli, finally breaking out of his shell and learning how to stick up for himself, asks Lawrence if he could please not call him by that name. Lawrence, undeterred, pushes further, challenging Eli and getting up in his face. When Eli quietly reveals that he might be on the autism spectrum, Lawrence, completely oblivious as to what that even is, tells him coldly to, quote, get off it pronto. Lawrence continues to drop the hammer with a cruel and vicious call-out. Quote, If you want to be something other than a nerd with a scar on his lip, you gotta flip the script. Get a face tattoo, or gouge your eye out. We'll call you Patch. Well, don't do that. You'll still look like a freak. End quote. Eli, whose soul once again completely breaks, begins to cry, and leaves the gym. After he storms out, Lawrence goes on a rant to his students about how he isn't sorry for any of his behavior. If you aren't strong on the inside you cannot be strong on the outside. Lawrence, retreating from his dark side, flips back to the other side of his duality. He reveals to his students that he, was, that he once had no friends, that he once was a loser, that he got bullied and picked on just like them. But after he learned how to tap into the other side of himself, he found true power and strength. To Lawrence, it's all about flipping that script, becoming something more than you are, discovering your true potential. Quote, It doesn't matter if you're a loser, or a nerd, or a freak. All that matters is that you become badass. End quote. At that moment, the door opens, and a child with a blue mohawk walks in. As Johnny welcomes his, quote, his new student, he realizes that, to his complete and utter disbelief, it's Eli. 
Johnny compliments him on his haircut, to which Eli says, I'm flipping the script. Johnny, floored with Eli's transformations, christens him anew. He is no longer Lip. He's now Hawk. Like a phoenix rising from the flames, Hawk becomes a completely new person. Next, he gets a tattoo of a hawk with a blue mohawk that completely covers his back. He becomes obsessed with impressing Lawrence and becomes one of Cobra Kai's top students. He develops a brotherhood, camaraderie, and kinship with the other members of the dojo who, like him, flipped the script and decided to tap into the other side of their personality. His confidence skyrockets, and he soon gets one of the hottest girls in school, one who picked on him and the other Cobra Kai's, to date him. He, like the great and powerful Zarathustra, is on top of the world. When you tap into your entire personality, when you realize your potential to the fullest capacity of your being, you can create something completely new. The transformation of Lip to Hawk proves as much. Only a person willing to go to that place of inner turmoil and horror and use it to become something who they weren't could completely accomplish that feat. Most can't handle seeing it even from afar. It's an entirely different story when you immerse yourself in it completely. You see this with people I mentioned in the intro. They all use their inner aggression and monstrousness to completely craft a new personality. Marshall Mathers used the, shift, the shittiness of his life growing up to eventually become the monster of Eminem. Chuck Palahniuk used the fucked up nature of his general existence to tap into their side of the human psyche and becomes one of the great and most unique cult, cult writers of the last 20th century. Cora goes to that place to save the world like several dozen times. In the story of your life, the triumphant hero is the one who conquers himself. The one that can learn to handle living in the hell that can become your life, taking a bath in the fire, and coming out as sharp and strong as a sword. But it can also lead to something else. In the original, not the garbage-ass one with Chris Hemsworth and Josh Peck, God forbid, Red Dawn, Robert, the bloodthirsty and ruthless teenage soldier whose family was slaughtered by Russian invaders, is carving in tally marks of people who he's killed on the butt of his assault rifle. Andrew Tanner, the wise colonel who schools the teens in combat, walks over to witness this activity and is disturbed. All that hate will burn you up, kid, he warns Robert. It keeps me warm, Robert replies. The potential bad that can come of immersing yourself within the fire is for what Tanner warned would happen. You'll burn up. You will become the fire itself. You won't just integrate your dark side. You'll become your dark side. That is the duality of man. The dark side can only serve you if it is balanced to the other side of your personality. Otherwise, it will bring nothing but destruction and pain if it is left unhinged. But, to the contrary of what you'll hear, there is no worse a fate than leaving the monster hidden away. Act 3. Unleash the Monster If the Dark Knight series are anything, it's dark. But I'm Ching. Batman and Bruce Wayne the living superhero embodiment, much better than Superman, by the way, of the conflict between light and dark, is forced into his duality of man due to the, due to the death, death of his parents at a very young age. Eventually become disil becoming disillusioned with the world around him, he withdrew from his status as a billionaire heir to a business empire to seek how to conquer fear. This led Wayne around the world, training in the most horrible conditions in order to conquer the mind and harness his fear. But nothing could prepare him for the pit. In the final volume of the series, Bruce is, literally, broken into pieces by Bane and, in, and placed into the pit, a cylinder-shaped prison in the middle of a desert that shoots hundreds of feet into the ground. Bane places Bruce into the prison in order to fully shatter his spirit. What makes the pit so horrible is that the prisoners are free to escape whenever they want. 
The top of the cylinder, their gateway to the free world, is open. There's even a rope to help them. How kind. The only problem is that no matter how, is that no one can make it except for one that did it 30 years ago. So the prisoners are left to rot, hopelessly looking at the beam of light beaming down from freedom, knowing that it will never come. Bruce, knowing that he had to save Gotham from, Gotham from Bane's destruction, knew he had to go places he had never gone before in order to do something that everyone thought was impossible. He had to unleash the monster. Bruce had two old men, his only allies in the pit, re-break his back so he could heal. He did thousands of bodyweight exercises a day, getting himself back into shape so he could make the climb out of the pit. However, every time, he would come up short. There was a gap between two ledges that was physically impossible for everyone who attempted to bridge it. Every time Bruce would jump, he would fall just short, slam into the wall, nearly break his body in half again, and be lowered to the pit in shame and hopelessness. Bruce trained harder. He got angrier. But yet he still failed over and over again. Realizing he was running out of time, he begged one of the old men to tell him how the child escaped. The old man then revealed something astounding. The child did the climb without the rope. She gave herself no choice but to bridge the gap between the ledges. If she died, she died, to borrow the phrase from Ivan Drago. Let the fear find you again, were the words of the old man. Bruce, realizing he had no choice, went for one last time, telling the guard that he didn't need the rope. The crowd of prisoners watching began to chant in their native language. In his final question to the other old man, Bruce asked what the chant means. The old man replied, Rise. Bruce, knowing that this was going to be his last shot, began to make the climb. He got to the ledge and peered over, the crowd's chant becoming deafening. Then, all of a sudden, a swarm of bats, the one thing he feared more than anything, began to fly past him. Embracing the biggest fear he had along with the fear of death, Bruce made the jump that no human could make. And he made it. This scene remains one of the most powerful bits of motivation that I've ever seen, and I hate the word motivation. However, the reason I believe that it resonates so much with me is due to the very real emotions that it evokes within the everyday person. Marvel movies are cool and all, but they don't hit you quite like these ones. Why? The reason is because Marvel never added the key ingredient to their movies. The reality of the dark side of humanity, and what it can do for you when you unleash it upon the world. Marvel movies, with the exception of Infinity War, which is, one of, which is the best one for that exact reason, all end happily, at least optimistically in some way or another. They don't get to that raw emotional side of the human psyche that can really make you feel something. Bruce knew that he had to become more than just a man, like his mentor Ra's al taught him, in order to do the unthinkable and break out of the pit. To do that, Bruce knew where he had to go, where the boys feared to tread. He had to go to fear itself. Fear is a dark emotion. We don't like to be afraid. It makes us uncomfortable, and it puts us on the edge. But, like the old man said, fear can also set you free. Fear was what got Bruce to make the jump. Anger is what lit the fire under him to prepare himself to make it. Bruce Wayne was forced, based on his circumstances, to transform himself, to tap into something he didn't know was there in order to ascend above everyone else when no one thought he could possibly do so. And in that, there is power. That power resides in the fact that you have the power. All of us have the power within themselves to access the monster that lies in wait, ready for you to poke at it. But you can't just recognize that it's there, either. You have to actively feed into it. In order to access the whole sense of your being, you have to willingly bring out your monster. You have to force yourself to look in the mirror, 
much like Voldemort did to Harry Potter, and see all of yourself, not just the parts you want to see. If you want to become better, you have to go where you never were to bring out something that you never thought you could be. To truly transform, you must engage the catalyst of transformation itself, the thing that shapes raw potential out of nothingness. What troubles me immensely about a lot of people today is the constant limitation of mindset that comes around them. This is not succumbing to diminishing returns of value or mindless positivity either. At least I don't think. It's simply like Kanye West once said, if you, do, if you don't think you can do anything, you won't do anything. The perception you have of yourself matters. The capacity to which you both recognize and consequently act upon it matters. But what matters more is the degree that you feed into that side of your personality. It's not enough to see that personality within yourself there and look upon it for what it is. You have to willingly bring out your monster. You have to see all of yourself, not just the part of yourself that you're comfortable with. When you immerse and integrate all of yourself into one holistic being, you can truly transform. You can truly become better than what you were. You're not just who you are anymore. You're who you could be. It is not useful to ignore half of yourself. Even worse, it's not useful to ignore half yourself when you know that the other side of yourself exists. Like the yin-yang symbol, there is a little bit of dark and, and light in every side of who people are and how the universe works. The world is not a matter of strictly black and white. That's why the Taoists designed the symbol that way. They did not succumb to absolutes. They did not believe that the colors of human nature existed. They only thought that there was gray within everyone, and it was up to them to integrate that properly in order to exist within the world. Because there are problems if we don't integrate within ourselves, if we don't unleash the monster within. There's a phrase from the Bible that I think is worth repeating, even if you're not religious. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, there's a phrase that says, quote, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. End quote. Many people have interpreted this phrase as meaning that people who are weak, the people that choose to not engage in conflict with others or themselves, are going to have the advantage within life. And these people are wrong. A lot of people who are overwhelmingly kinder beta in personality, particularly men, believe that they, because they do not engage with their darker side of their personality that they're doing a service for the world. And this cannot be farther from the truth. Because the truth is that people who don't engage with the dark side of their personality are not aware of their true potential. And potential, like we've said earlier, is not always a good thing. Potential for good can just as easily be flipped into potential for evil. It is not enough to just aspire to be a good person or aspire to be something that can be a light to the world. To truly realize what you're capable of, you have to realize you can hurt people and bring malevolence onto the world. I've been hurt a lot in my life, a lot like other people have. I'm not claiming to be special in that regard. However, I do think that I'm at least a little more perceptive than most. And one horrible thing that I've realized about myself recently is the power that I have to inflict pain over people. I believe that the world has judged me exceptionally harshly. In a lot of areas, I don't believe that I've been given a fair or proper chance to exhibit who I truly am as a person. Again, this isn't saying that life should be fair and catered to who I am and who, who I could be. But this is just me noticing something because I have to. Having been hurt so many times in so many ways, particularly socially and personality-wise, by people, I've come to realize I have an extraordinary ability to cut people down to size and strike them exactly where it hurts. I've developed the ability to read people within about five minutes of meeting them. I know their entire life story. I can see it in how they interact with me, other people, and themselves exactly who, exactly who they are. I know that the attractive girl who starts screaming as soon as she walks into the room and talks over everyone is as insecure of a person as you'll ever meet, and that she is overcompensating in that regard in a social setting in order to get her ego out of the gutter so that she feels better for those few hours that she's there 
before it sends her back in the ether when she leaves. I know that the nerdy guy that spits out bullshit facts that no one cares about and has an intellectual superiority complex is incredibly desperate for any sort of validation, and that he knows that these fucking stupid facts that no one cares about are his only perceived chance of getting him out of the hell in which he currently resides, and vault him up in the social hierarchy by providing the one value that he can. I know that the girl who gets a bunch of tattoos and colored hair and goes to activist rallies has an opinion of herself that is so painfully low that the only way that she can get some sort of fulfillment within herself is by attempting to take all the problems of the world onto her shoulders at once, while simultaneously knowing that she is solving none of them. She's only doing it to make herself feel better. I know these things. And, if someone like these people try to attack me or cut me down to size, I know exactly how to retaliate. I have the potential to take their entire fucking lives apart. I have the capability to drop a nuke on their entire ego. I can put a bullet between the eyes of their self-perception and self-set fire to the forest that is the projection of their life. I can be so mercilessly and viciously cruel that I can shatter any remote sense of confidence that they have in coming after me if I choose to do so. But yet I choose not to. There's a saying that nice, guy, nice guys finish last. That saying is half true. The duality of man proves it. If you're a totally nice guy, with no perception of your dark side after your personality, you will finish last. If you cannot even look at your potential for bad, when something bad inevitably happens to you, like Peterson's client, it can totally break your world. You have to realize that you can be as bad, a bad per person as much as you can be a good person. Ignoring that side of your personality doesn't make you moral. It makes you naive, it makes you easy to manipulate, and it makes you weak. But you can be a nice guy without being naive. And that way is knowing that you can be the worst guy possible. As Hawk from Cobra Kai integrates his dark side, he, it soon begins to take over. He becomes the fire. He becomes the exact opposite, and he begins to learn that bad guys finish last as well. He has now seen both sides of the extreme. He knows what it's like to be bullied, and also no, now knows what it's like to be the one doing the bullying. But, more importantly, he realizes that neither are worth it. He knows that neither, in order to truly ascend above others, he must put both absolutes aside and navigate that line between good and evil. <coughs> because, to answer Chuck Palahniuk's question of what makes someone a bad person, if you don't know that you can be a bad person, you will always be relegated to being a bad person. We have the potential for so much more if we stop limiting ourselves to what we are and start looking to who we could be. So, what does Matthew 5.5 5 actually mean? It does not mean that the passive and the weak will inherit the earth. It means that those who know both, the both how bad and how good they can be, but do not succumb to either extreme, can exist, and that they will eventually be the ones that people look up to for guidance and for help. They will be the ones that can best understand human nature and all its flaws, and can develop meaning from the madness. Like the Nietzsche and Ubermensch, we must be the ones to take on the values of the world while still respecting the values that came before. We cannot kill God, but we cannot suppress ourselves either. Because if this idea has taught us anything, it's that the potential within ourselves is near endless. We humans are capable of extraordinary things, both good and bad. Ranging from David Goggins to Malala to Hirohito, our potential on the spectrum is on a spectrum with no endpoints. We can place ourselves on that spectrum in whatever fashion we choose to realize our potential. When we do not realize our duality of man, when we don't unleash our personal monster, we create no avenues for growth or expansion. We simply cut them off of the throat with nothing to do but watch it fritter away. Nietzsche's call, echoed by Chuck Palahniuk and the others throughout this post, is to be aggressive. Go out and get what you want. Don't be passive. Passive is weak. But don't be a bully either. 
bullying is weaker than what being passive is. The ability to show mercy is directly derived from the ability that you can be the ability that knowing you can be merciless. The ability to heal pain is directly derived from knowing that you can be the genesis of where pain comes from. The ability to help people is directly derived from your ability that no one can truly save you. Unleash the monster and you'll realize what you're truly capable of. Unleash the monster and you will experience liberation. Unleash the monster and you will truly be able to ascend. It's not okay to be weak. It's not okay to be a loser. It's not okay to not explore all of your mind. It's not okay to realize your potential that you have to affect the world, to put a dent in the universe. When you are able to see the dark side within yourself, you are able to articulate just how bad you can be and act in the complete inverse of that. Your potential is the most dangerous weapon that you have at your disposal and, consequently, the thing that can allow you to change your life in the most optimistic way imaginable. The choice is ours. I consider myself a very angry person, but, to the contrary of most around me, I don't see that as a bad thing. I see it as a realization that I'm not a perfect person by any stretch, but I'm at least aware of what I need to fix in order to get as close as I can to that point. Like Robert and Red Dawn, I walk a fine line between letting it keep me warm and letting it burn me alive. It's an awesome responsibility to have, and it is my hope that you can all experience that same thing as you go throughout your journey. But, as a final warning coming from Chuck Palahniuk, I would say that using liposuction human fat as a catalyst to make and sell luxury bars of soap is a bit too far. So, thanks for listening everyone. I'm really proud of this post. I'm really, I really hope it helps you because I truly believe that this is a revolutionary idea. So, I'll see you next week. Own the day. Open your mind. Thanks for listening. Stopping, hopping like a rabbit When I take the Nino Ross, you know I got to have it I lay back in the cut, retain myself Think about the shit and I think it well How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?